Hi, this is Dr. Shane, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Einstein Go Go, a weekly radio show exploring the wonders of science and its impact on the world. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and feel free to get in touch with us via Einstein Go Go's Twitter account or Facebook page. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Einstein and Gogo. You are listening to 3RRR. I'm Dr. Shane, and we have a huge show for you today. We've got uh, one of my favorite teams on the line for our news segment, and we are going to be uh, interviewing three other guests a little bit later in the show from all over Australia. But uh, first up, uh, it's a big good morning to Dr. Crystal. Hello. Good morning, Dr. Shane. Happy Sunday. Happy Sunday. I thought there was a special day there for a second I'd missed that you were about to talk about. Freaked me out. It's Einstein a go-go day. There's nothing more to celebrate than that. Yeah, we should have a day, actually. There seems to be a day for everything these days, but um, yeah. Dr. Lauren, good morning. Good morning. I like the idea of that. Happy happy Einstein a go-go day. You're broadcasting, <laughs> broadcasting from your closet. I'm broadcasting from my closet. So I have four children under the age of four, not all mine, but they are all in the house. And so I had to hide away from them. So if you hear any screams, it's not me. Fair enough. Good morning, Dr. Linden. Good morning. I instead have outsourced my dependents. They are walking with their crying and their barking <laughs> far away from me. So I can be here on Einstein and Go-Go Day. Fantastic. I think it's going, to be, it's going to be funny when we're all back in the studio together, just how many additional uh, personnel, animals, etc. are brought in. I think it'll be a, a different green room from what we used to experience earlier in the year. But it'll be fun. Now, we've, uh, we've got some news. Uh, Dr. Crystal, do you want to start us off? Yeah, yeah. Thanks, Dr. Shane. Look, I was really interested this week and interested in generally about the application of AI to different questions, like the big important questions. And this week I saw a paper in the Ecology and Evolution Journal, which was applying AI to the very important question, which brown bear is this? (laughs) (laughs) It's a very interesting, it's a very interesting paper because it brings together a really interesting team of people to really look at how facial recognition software can be applied to wildlife monitoring. Mm. And if we can have more effective ways of doing population um, and modelling of threatened species uh, that are in a non-interventionist kind of way. But we needed to train, they needed to train some algorithms up. So this was uh, work that was coming from the University of Victoria in Canada, um, led by Melanie Clapham and a project called Bear ID. And so basically what they wanted to do, they wanted to be able to work out um, which brown bears they were looking at, which is hard because if you think about it, brown bears put on weight and, and lose weight. You know, they're, they're quite long-lived animals over 20, 25 years, so they do change quite a lot of their lifetime. So could you actually train software to actually be able to track which bear was which? And um, thankfully, lots of people like taking photographs of brown bears, so they actually just took um, images from DSLR cameras from uh, National Park um uh, staff, but also part of the community. So it was a real citizen science effort. They said, have you got any photos of our favourite bears? Send them in. And so they actually got over almost 5,000 images of about 132 bears to train this AI algorithm to recognise which bear was which. And it was pretty good, actually. They got an accuracy and a recall of about 98% precision. So, you know, is this a bear? Yes. Is it one of our bears? Yes. 98% of the time. And then which bear was this? That accuracy was around 84% in terms of picking the right bear from the images when they'd never seen that photo before. So a new photo of a known bear. And anyway, I think this is really fascinating for a couple of reasons. One, it's a great demonstration of the way in which AI can be used for conservation, but it brought together a really interesting platform of people to collaborate. And this is the thing I find most fascinating is that there's this um, this community called Wild Labs and it sort of is, is a collaboration platform that reaches out to conservation biologists and researchers, but data scientists and sort of Silicon Valley type entrepreneurs and engineers to sort of say, what are the big problems in conservation technology um, and conservation? And how is it that we might be able to harness technology and the community to bring people together to solve some of these problems? So I'm loving the rise of citizen science, data science, and, uh, and asking the big questions about conservation to help protect biodiversity into the future. Yeah, I think we're, we're going to have to talk to that researcher at some stage because I've so many questions i mean my first question is were there any bears that just loved the camera like out of the, <laughs> out of the five thousand, with it was there one or two bears that seemed to pop up more than they should like because they're just out there yeah photograph me photograph me 
Yep. Here I'm, I'm am, gorgeous. I'm gorgeous. <laughs> you know. There's a, isn't that a fat bear competition where like people can vote for their favorite fat bear at the end of um at, at the end of the season and and like the public vote on which which bear is their favorite fat bear before they go into winter hibernation. It's yeah. really popular in the northern hemisphere. But uh but yeah, so bears are very well loved. But how do we do that for other species? And it's interesting because bears don't have any unique identifiers particularly. Right. So I actually had to train the algorithm to actually work out what a facial feature for a bear is, yep. like what those landmark features should be and, you know, the distance between their nose and their forehead and just a whole bunch of other things because unlike zebras, they don't really have a yeah. unique kind of fingerprint of, it, on their it face. It would have been so. funny too to see if the, the AI spat out a few that just said uh, drunk guy in bear suit. <laughs> <laughs> Not real bear. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Hopefully not part of the testing algorithm, but yeah, it was, um, it, it's a really interesting it's area great. and one that I want to keep an eye on in terms of how you use those different skill sets, yeah. you know, to uh, to answer some of these questions going forward. But yeah. yeah, we'd love to talk to those researchers. It'd be great. Fascinating stuff. It'd be great to get them on. Dr. Lauren, what do you got for us? Well, it kind of follows on actually quite nicely because this is looking at, again, shared data sets over large groups. Um, and this is a paper that was published in Nature Biotechnology this week, looking at uh, analysing a whole heap of bacteria data. So this study took 52,000 samples from oceans, soils, animals and people. And um, these different samples were obviously you know, water, dirt, skin samples, a whole mix of jumble of DNA from different bacteria as well as from the organisms. And what they've done is use something called genome-resolved metagenomics, which is a technique which was first used about 15 years ago to do a similar sort of study looking at what bacteria exists in a mine, and it was an acid mine. And in this case, they've taken that idea and gone much, much bigger. So they've used these 52,000 samples. They've taken this big mix-up of jumble of bacterial DNA and sorted it all out using this technique to find a, a total of 12,000 new species of bacteria, which is just mind-blowing. So it's increased the diversity of known bacteria in the world by 44% from one study, which is huge. So these bacteria, are, they're not in new phyla, so they're just sort of um, subspecies of rather than being new classes or new kingdoms, for example. But the information is just mind-blowing really because it gives us more information about evolution for a start obviously we're learning more about these different types of bacteria but it also is a whole range now of new proteins that we can get from these bacteria so that could be a resource for us for medical science or, or just for research in general and the other exciting thing is these could potentially be host bacteria for viruses that we can't grow in labs. So there's certain viruses that we can't experiment on because they don't grow well in lab situations, but they grow, they can, they can grow within bacteria. So, you know, having 12,000 new species of bacteria really opens up a lot of opportunities here. Mm. Is it any surprise that we're, you know, we see that sort of increase? Like, even if I think about it, like there's so many places on earth, even to this day, where we haven't really looked and explored i mean i'm not just talking about on land either and presumably mm. like this is just the tip of the iceberg even though it seems like huge it's um yeah, yeah. well i must admit that was my thought i'm like well this you know, it's, the numbers are just huge and you think 44 percent increase mm. and you're like well how much more must there be because fifty-two thousand samples sounds like a lot but when you think about the whole world you know yeah. they, they did take samples from every continent and every ocean but they obviously didn't take samples from every person and every yeah. animal and every flower. <laughs> so we, we are just living in such a diverse world without even realising it. Yeah. No, you, said, you said, Lauren, that it was an open data project. So that, are they making these sequences available to researchers? To me, that's the most exciting yeah. bit, that they're unlocking this whole trove of data. Exactly, exactly. So, yeah, so all of the samples had come from, again, yeah, open resource. And then what they've done with the information is they've formed this um, group called the Genomes from the Earth's Microbiomes or the GEM catalogue, uh, which I really like. <laughs> um, but, yeah, so this gen GEM catalogue is, is now freely available too. So researchers now can access it and find mm. out this information about the new 12,000 bacteria species. Very nice. Very nice stuff. Amazing. Now. Dr. Linden, you uh, you emailed me very early in the week excited about a story that you wanted to make sure the other two didn't get their hands on. So you locked it in, I think, on Monday or something. Do tell. 
Yes, well, this uh, is an example of me getting excited by a headline and an amazing job being done by a university's media team. And then when I read through the paper and sort of tease apart the science, I think, <laughs> whoa, 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 whoa. <laughs> okay. Hold the phone. You're getting a little bit carried away. So the headline that I saw this week, new laser tractor beam technology has potential to tame lightning. Awesome. Like, there are a lot of exciting trigger yep. words, there, right? Tractor beam, taming lightning. I was thinking about Storm from X-Men. I was like, oh, I can't wait to share this story on the radio because, um, you know, lightning and the, the hook that was sent out with the media release, we know that uh, dry lightning was a cause of a lot of the bushfires over the past summer. Lightning that came from storms that were themselves uh, set up by the fires in this horrible, nasty cycle, making such a... A terrible uh, summer for so many people in Australia. So, you know, I'm like, well, that's really exciting. If we could tame this lightning, that would be really cool. And these researchers do mention that perhaps one day down the track, the technology that they've looked at could be used for lightning um, diversion, but there's still a little bit of a way to go there. It's kind of yeah, the media team got a little bit excited, but that doesn't mean that the research isn't really cool. So this uh, study was published in Nature Communications earlier in the week. Researchers from UNSW Canberra and uh, ANU have been trying to figure out how to um, make a better path, a path of least resistance for an electric discharge or for a lightning strike or sort of an electric zap, right? So they normally take the path of least resistance. And there are technologies that have used laser pulsing to kind of help the electrons and the ions sort of move through and, and create the, the lightning strike. But that can be very energy intensive. So what they have done has uh, they thought, right, if we can make a little channel or a little path in the air, and they're using ambient air here, they're not using uh, non-realistic uh, atmospheric conditions, they're using, you know, ambient air. If we can make a channel or a path of, of hot air, of, of warm air, then that will make the particles more excited, that will be um, the preferred path of a lightning strike, right? So that's what they've done in the lab using you know, two plates, two electrically charged plates, up to two and a half centimetres apart, not 12 kilometres from the bottom of the, of the storm cloud to the top, two and a half centimetres <laughs> apart. And they've used uh, little, little metal spheres or glass spheres, sorry, or little graphene uh, particles that have been suspended in a laser. And the laser has um, heated up these particles, allowing a channel of hot air to be created. And that will create a, a preferred path for these lightning strikes. And the pictures in the paper are actually really cool. You can see a straight line of, of lightning, I guess, in inverted commas going between these plates. And so there are a lot of potential applications of this technology. It doesn't use as much energy as the current, as, as other methods that exist. So it can be uh, much more much more applied in applied in many more different places, um, treating cancerous cells, looking at uh, particle accelerating physics. You know, there's a lot of different applications, and maybe one day down the track, maybe some kind of lightning diversion. But I think there's a few a few steps away. So I got really excited, but I should have read the paper in more detail before uh, bagging it from you guys. <laughs> yeah, well, and, and, you know, I'm glad you did because we might have done less work in reading it and accidentally used the word tractor beam inappropriately, as has been done, no doubt, in this press release. <laughs> it's a bit like... It's a bit like what we see in biomedical research when someone does something in a dish and says, oh, in 10 years' time, this could be a cure for the disease, when yep. there's a big difference between doing something, as you say, Lauren, in lab conditions versus in the field and what it would take to actually use this in an atmospheric scenario in the yeah. real world. However, everything has to come from something, right? You've got to start with the basic research. Yep. So, you know, you want to, you want to applaud the team, but maybe rein yep. the press office in. And it's exactly. certainly... I'm not saying it's not exciting, and it, it is, the more I read, I thought, oh, this is really cool but the steps required to get it out into yeah. the real world well, the probably the a bottom, lot more collaboration yeah the bottom required. line is this is just another example where we need to do more work to effectively communicate what is really interesting science without doing it in a half-assed way which is what's happened here um and that's hard work and people have to do the work and when they do um as you've just done Lyndon, it sounds interesting sounds sounds like something we should look into um but yeah 
don't don't beef it out of <laughs> out of all proportion. Well, thank you very much, you three. It's been great chatting to you for news. I'm going to run off to our first guest in a few minutes. Uh, we will chat again very soon. Have a great day. You too. Bye, Jane. All right, folks, we're going to take a break for some music. And in just a moment, we'll be talking with our first researcher on the line today from the University of Sydney. So hang in there. Triple R. Uh, welcome back, everybody. You are listening to Einstein and Go-Go on 3 R. On the line now from the University of Sydney's School of Health Sciences is Dr. Kerry Peake. Good morning, Kerry. How are you going? Good morning, Shane. Good, thank you. It's great to talk to you. I, I think it's really interesting. I don't know if there's any correlation between me setting up an interview with a physiotherapy expert and me then pulling a muscle in my calf. Does this normally happen to you when you interact with people? Do they suddenly just come out with all these injuries? Yeah, yeah, it's quite common. I think most physiotherapists will tell you the same story that people do want to tell you their uh, injury history. And most <laughs> of the time, there's not. <laughs> but I hope, I hope I didn't cause the uh, inadvertently cause your calf strain. No, no, it was uh, it was a COVID related injury, actually. Uh, believe it or not, I was um, heading down to my son's school to help uh, carry his bag and, you know, just help him with some books. And um, realized partway there, it's only about 100 meters, that I didn't have a mask and I freaked out. I'd just forgotten, walked out the front door, forgot, freaked out, ran back, and there you go. Just um, pushed things a bit hard. So, <laughs> anyway, it's all good. It's all good. Um, but uh, what I wanted to talk to you about was, was some of your research with regards to the injuries that people can get when they're doing sports and so forth. Because this is a pretty uh, big deal, especially with contact sports and so forth. Now, you work in particular in the area of sort of neck strength and concussion. Um, first of all, give us a bit of an idea of how bad the sort of concussion problem is, especially in sort of um, youth sports and so forth. In Australia, well, it, it it is a it is a big problem. I mean, when I first graduated as a physiotherapist twenty odd years ago, we didn't really talk about concussion. You know, it was very much dismissed unless you um, were knocked out um, or lost consciousness. Then really, they weren't diagnosed. And so there has been an enormous growth in the number of concussions that have been reported, particularly in contact sports. Now, some of that is is potentially there is an increasing risk, but it also may be just the fact that we're recognising um, concussion to be a serious issue. And we're also recognising the, the signs and symptoms and that they don't have to have a loss of consciousness. And so I think the fact that there's increased reporting is not a bad thing um, because we do need to look after these athletes. But we do know that athletes who have had a concussion are more at risk of having a second concussion. Mm. So my research is in that primary prevention space rather than the treatment of concussion to see what can we do to prevent concussion and that has to sit really within the adolescent athlete as that's when most athletes will sustain their first concussion yeah and just sort of um following on from that also i'm assuming there is quite a range of responses when you have concussion i mean i, I have a i have a friend of mine who had a quite a serious um you know she was playing women's afl and had quite a serious concussion which caused all sorts of issues with concentration and so forth for a protracted period so how much of a range is there in terms of injuries from concussion and you know like what's on the sort of low end versus the high end so that there is a huge range and i think this is why sometimes it can be underdiagnosed because it can be just simple as having you know mood change or mm. changes in emotion um, and up to the, the severe end of loss of consciousness. And so because there's no diagnostic test to really say whether somebody has had a concussion or not, it's really diagnosed on mechanism of injury. So whether there's been a direct blow to the head or a blow to the body, which may have caused a whiplash type motion. And then having, a, you know, being a, the, the athlete reporting sort of signs or symptoms of concussion. And so, so it really goes hand in hand. And so there, there can be very, very mild, which would be very easy to miss, particularly in adolescent athletes who are already a bit moody yep. and um, show varying signs of concentration anyway. Um, and um, and so it's really important that if you, especially at grassroots level, if there's any hint that this athlete could be concussed, then we have to err on the side of caution and recognise and remove that um, athlete from play because no game at adolescent level is that important that you want to risk a serious head injury. Yeah. Now, one of the things that I know you're working on there is the 
the role of neck strength in in this. Uh, tell, tell us about that. How important – I mean, part of me instinctively wants to say if my neck's really weak, my head will bounce around more and that's good for me. Uh, I mean, but I'm assuming it's the other way around. Yeah, yeah, that's right. So what, what is starting to sort of emerge in the in the literature is that a lot of is associated with how much head acceleration there is. So, you know, the higher head acceleration, particularly uncontrolled head acceleration, then you're more likely to get contact of the brain against the skull, particularly if you're having, you know, a really violent movement. It can contact at the front and it can also contact at the back or the side, depending where the hit was. And so if we can um, connect the head to the body with a strong, stiff, activated neck, then you're really not opposing the force with just your head. You can now bring in a lot more of your trunk and your body weight. And so there is a number of studies that have been published that show that adding neck exercises into contact sport athletes can reduce the risk of concussion. And so we've just written a systematic review, which isn't yet published, but it's currently under review, that um, I think it had about, it was almost 10,000 athletes across six different studies, which did show those that implemented neck exercises or had a strong neck um, had a lower risk of um, concussion. And that's in a range of sports, mainly in adolescents, but also in adults. Mm. Now, that must be also dependent on people's height and physical stature as well, because uh, you know my recollection is always when, when, whenever I played these sports, it was the, the short little guys who had the little, little strong necks and you know would be in the middle of the field. And then us tall guys like me had the longer necks and we were down the back where we weren't going to be impacting other people as much. It, it, there must be, I mean, there's neck strength, but then there, there must also be an element of just physical sort of design. Well, well, there is. So we, we did conduct a study very recently um, looking at neck strength in adolescent rugby players and football players. So the rugby players tend to be stronger. They tend to be bigger. They tend to be heavier. Um, but it isn't just about neck strength, particularly when you're talking about concussion, because we're trying to reduce head acceleration. And if you're heading a ball or if you've been hit in a tackle, that head acceleration can happen very quickly. So the muscles in the neck have to be strong, but they need to be recruited quickly. So they've got to be able to be switched on as fast as possible so you can have these really big guys with these big thick necks you know thinking about these rugby forwards but if they can't recruit those muscles quickly then they're just as high a risk as the the boys at the back with the pencil necks who may actually be lower risk because maybe they can recruit those muscles quickly so it so it is actually quite a specialist area because it's not just a case of strengthening the neck it's also aiming um, an exercise program for fast recruitment Mm. now that that was going to be my next question. What kind of exercises do you do to have your neck muscles act quickly as opposed to just be strong? Yeah, so um, we, we we worked with an elite club, a rugby union club in New South Wales quite recently because surprisingly in, in rugby, certainly in New South Wales, a lot of the clubs don't seem to do any neck strengthening at all. They tend to do a lot of upper trapezius work mm. or upper that may have some carryover to the neck, but they tend to forget the neck flexors. And these are the ones that tend to be weaker anyway, and also the ones that do need to be recruited very, very quickly. Um, and that's the same in football, um, soccer, um, same in AFL, same in rugby. Um, and so we do a lot of work where I'm using bungee cords, so there's recoil, so they have to be able to, to overcome that recoil really, really quickly, as opposed to a low, steady, you know, concentrated neck exercises with with really looking at sort of slower twitch we need to get those fast twitch muscle fibers and really really fast mm. so when we think back about the the human body sort of in a more evolutionary sort of phase i mean we weren't really meant to do these sorts of activities were we i mean i i can't imagine you know our ability to headbutt you know the 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 lion on coming you know was was something that would be an advantage so are we sort of pushing our bodies well beyond the design limits here to optimize our capacity to handle concussions is that is that where we're going is are you seeing that where we really just we weren't designed for this well, that, that's a really interesting point and probably not something I've really thought about. I mean, I guess that the neck was really to give us maximum um, movement of our head so that we could see oncoming mm. um, prey, I guess, if we're going as far back as that. Um, and I think I think what's really fascinating in sport is that 
um, if you look at sort of the elite level, I mean, the athletes, you know, they specialize, they're, they're, they're stronger, faster, fitter than they've ever been. So these hits are going to be much harder. And, and I think the problem is with the neck is that this is the forgotten area. You know, if you look in all the sports injury literature, there's so much about ACLs and I'm not saying ACL injuries are not important, but you know, there's, there's stuff about training the ankles and the knees and the shoulders. You see almost nothing about the necks. And we started working in neck strengthening 20 odd years ago. We worked in Formula One and in rugby union. Um, and then coming over to Australia, and I've lived here for sort of over 15 years, and starting to get back into this area now as a as a researcher, the literature hasn't moved on. Mm. And I think it does. It needs to catch up. And I think that given all the heightened awareness around concussion, now is the time to really start to implement these exercises and really get on top of this. Yeah. Now, we've talked a fair bit about the, the head and the neck protecting the head, but what about the neck itself? I mean, we see a lot of injuries to the neck. Is it the same sort of protective mechanisms or is that, that different again? No, it is very similar. So um, when I started working in um, in neck strengthening 20-odd years ago, so I worked with the formula, former um, British uh, Olympic team physio and also the, um, the physio for the rugby, um, England rugby team. And, and, and as I say, concussion really wasn't spoken about then. It was much more about neck injury. So that's really where we started. And then we've transitioned into um, concussion. So it was very much around preventing sports-related neck injury, particularly the stingers and the burners that you see commonly in, in rugby. Um, and, and you are trying to use the neck to give some protection towards those sort of compression or the distraction forces that they're subjected to. Yeah. Well, look, Kerry, it's, it's been absolutely fabulous talking to you. I think you've given most of our listeners more of an appreciation of their neck strength and the speed that their neck can can deal with things. And I, I suppose this is something that we, we don't just need to get into the minds of parents and so forth with regards to their kids but also into the the education programs that we have with regards to exercise that we do and the sorts of exercise that we do as you say we we do so much for other parts of our body you know i'm complaining about a sore sore calf but i i remember at my my karate school we would do a lot of neck exercises because there was the potential you might want to headbutt someone and i thought that was really weird and i'd never done those exercises before but that's not something that we normally would teach in schools and so forth is it is that something we really need to notch up a bit yeah look I, I wouldn't do it sort of as a matter of course but I certainly would start in the in the adolescent athletes if they're going to play contact sports um, a motor sports equestrian um, and um, and I think the thing is is that the neck is incredibly strong and enormous forces so so you know the strongest player i've ever tested on his neck flexors he got almost 78 kilos i mean that that's unheard of mm. i mean and, and most of us would be too scared to load his neck to that sort of amount but in fact if it's done safely if you're going to withstand you know a 100 kilo rugby player running at you you have to load them up to really high forces but you have yeah. to understand what you're doing yeah um but yeah it's absolutely important that we start to we do it now. Yep. Well, great stuff, Kerry. Thanks so much for chatting to us today on Einstein and Go-Go. Good luck with the ongoing work, and um, we will keep a close eye on our next from, from now on. Thanks so much. Great. Thanks, Shane. Folks, that was Dr. Kerry Peake from uh, University of Sydney in the School of Health Sciences. We're going to take a break for some important station announcements, and then we'll be back with our next guest in just a few moments. Triple R. Now, welcome back, everybody. You are listening to Einstein to Go Go on 3 Triple R. On the line now, all the way from somewhere in the uh, early morning in the south of France, is Associate Professor Russell Drysdale. He's part of the University of Melbourne. Good morning, Russell. Good morning, Shane. And I do mean early morning for you. Sorry about that. Thanks for, so much for making the time to talk to us. Um, what's, That's fine. First of all, what's life like there in France at the moment? We're hearing dreadful stories from Europe. Um, yeah, I mean, it's a fairly severe lockdown at the moment, so we're not allowed out uh, except for essential things like shopping and visits to the doctor and a bit of exercise each day for an hour within a 1K radius. Right. Yeah, 1K, gee, and we were complaining here in Melbourne because it was 5Ks. 
Um, that's, yes. <laughs> certainly, we sounds like we had it easy. Now, you you've been doing some amazing work over the over the years in paleoclimatology, which I think is an area that most people are very aware of now. You know, this study of of ancient climates and so forth. And and one of the things I hadn't really thought about was this idea that we have um, a lot of temperature information from ice cores and ocean sediments. But I hadn't really thought about the fact that that only covers a portion of the Earth's surface, and we don't we don't have a lot of clear stuff around land. Tell, tell us a bit about that, because I, I suspect this is not something that people think about very often. Sure. So yeah, as you say, ice cores uh, are very good at recording temperatures. Um, temperatures above the ice sheet are, all, are recorded in the the water isotopes that are that are bound up in the ice, um, and in the oceans there are certain uh, biomarkers that are present in in the ocean water column that settle on the ocean floor and you can call through the sediments on the ocean floor and measure those biomarkers and they can give you information about the temperature of the ocean surface in the past but uh, as you say on land uh, we have very little options very few options for reconstructing past temperatures because mm. the the information is much more complicated than the way in which it's stored in the various archives on the land surface. Yeah. I mean, just thinking about that, I mean, I get the ice version must be this pristine scenario, and we, we've all seen pictures of these ice cores and how amazing they are, and sometimes just visually you can inspect and see when there was you know, volcanic ash in the air and other things, you can, you can see this really clearly. But the, the ocean sediment part seems to me as though it would be very messy. Tell us a bit more about that. That sounds fascinating that that's so, such a good tool for working out temperatures over time. Sure, yeah. So th- there are these um, organic molecules that are formed in the in the ocean water column uh, called alkanones. And there, there are two in particular, the, the ratio of which uh, are abundant according to the temperature at the time of their formation. And so over time, as the ocean temperatures change, the ratio between these two alkanone molecules changes in a fairly predictable way. And that information is um, captured um, in ocean sediments on the ocean floor. Um, and the, the organisms that are responsible for, for recording that information are called coccoliths. These are really tiny calcareous organisms that, that build their, their um, shell structure out of, out, of these, um, out of calcium carbonate, but incorporate these alkanones at, uh, during their growth. Hmm. And now you've been working now on a on a version of this or you know a new version to determine what the temperatures have been over a protracted period on land. Tell us how you go about that because that's that's fascinating. We haven't had that before. Sure. Yeah, well outside the polar regions as I said it's very difficult to obtain records of past temperature. So the work we've been doing is uh, has involved collecting information from caves and uh, we're particularly interested in uh, information from uh, mineral deposits called speleothems. So most of you listeners will be familiar with stalactites and stalagmites that uh, we see in tourist caves when, mm. when we visit those. Um, so we, we study stalagmites. They, they record information about past climate because uh, the water that from which they grow um, ultimately falls as rain above the land surface, uh, uh, above the cave. And that water infiltrates through the bedrock and builds the stalagmites uh, below in the caverns. But we've been working on these particular types of speleothems that grow underwater in cave pools, and they grow very, very slowly. And because they grow so slow, the, the, re- the way the reaction occurs between the water and the mineral um, enables temperature information to be captured in the mineral deposit, and in particular using. Um, magnesium, which is a, a fairly co- common element that we find in these deposits. And so what we've found is um, changes in the magnesium concentration in these subaqueous speleothems preserve information about past cave temperatures and past ca- uh, and cave temperatures uh, change according to temperatures outside the cave. And so that enables us to match temperature patterns from the cave with temperature patterns that we observe uh, in the ocean sediments and ultimately in, in ice cores in the polar regions. And so it provides us with um, land, land surface expression of 
temperature changes that can complement information from the oceans and polar ice sheets. Yeah, it's fascinating. And over what time frames can you can you do this? Um, you know, how far back can you go? Well, at the moment, we're working on um, some samples that cover the last uh, few hundred thousand years, which which spans you know huh, about three or four glacial interglacial cycles, so ice age cycles where the Earth's climate has um, cooled down and gone into an ice age. Big ice sheets have grown over North America and parts of Europe, and then these these are punctuated by um, much shorter interglacials, warm periods, mm. which are similar to what we're in today. And so we've been able to measure these magnesium concentrations over these past few glacial interglacial cycles, and they match the nearby ocean temperatures very closely. Mm. And in terms of the the sort of calibration, do you when you go back that far, do you need those big punctuated sort of events in order to say, okay, this shows us that even inside the cave here, things have got really cold X tens of thousands of years ago. Is that how you line this data up with, say, for example, the ice core data from you know another part of the world? Yeah, pretty much. Yeah, I mean, the, by targeting periods of time when there were large fluctuations. So, for example, when we transition from a from an ice age into a, a warm interglacial period, that that change occurs over you know a fairly short period of time, usually about ten thousand years. And the temperature changes are large. And so, you know, targeting those intervals, we can really pick up a very clear temperature change in the cave. Yep. And and by linking, as I said, by linking those changes in the cave to the ocean sediments, we can um, do land, land ocean correlations. Mm-hmm. Uh, and another advantage of working in, in the caves is the, the mineral deposits that we work on can be dated very, very accurately and precisely, whereas the ocean sediments, um, you know, beyond radiocarbon dating limits uh, are very difficult to date. And so by matching the temperature profiles from the different uh, archives, we can apply the the age information that we get from the cave and apply that to the ocean record and really uh, enhance our understanding of how uh, you know, the processes that cause ice ages to terminate and, and so yeah. on. Yeah. Now, I, I know, Russell, you, you did some of this work in a cave system in Tuscany, um, which is, you know, it's not the worst place in the world to, to have to work, I suppose. But how, I mean, we can do ice cores in many locations around the globe. How many locations do you think you could do this sort of work? How many cave systems fit the criteria of what you would need? Um, so you need a fairly, I mean, the, the deposits that we're working on, they're in a sort of generic sense, they're fairly common. I mean, most of us have been in tourist caves and seen little pools inside mm. the cave with crystals growing on the floor of, the, of, of those pools. I mean, essentially, we're looking at deposits very similar to, to those. Um, the key characteristic of the deposits we've been working on in Italy is that they, they grow very, very slowly, and we think it's that s- slow growth, the reactions that are responsible for that slow growth is what really allows the magnesium to be um, incorporated into the mineral according to temperature. Um, and so, you know, the, those those deposits uh, can be found in very similar cave systems. So we're working in a, more or less an alpine cave system. So other alpine cave systems where similar spiliferms will grow slowly would be ideal mm. places to look. Mm. So other other cave systems in, in alpine Europe, for example. Yep. Would, uh, would be good candidates. Yeah. Excellent. Well, look, it's it's fascinating work, and I hadn't really thought about how difficult it was to do these temperature um, sort of measurements over such a protracted period on, on in land environments before, but um, it's it's really good to, to hear that you've come up with this technique for doing this, and it sounds like it's working really well. Thanks so much for being a guest today on Triple R. Um, good luck there in France, and, and, and also thanks for, for staying up until, I think, what, what after 1 a.m. To, um, to do the interview. Um, thanks so much, Russell. No No problem, Shane. Thanks. Folks, uh, that was Associate Professor Russell Drysdale from the University of Melbourne, currently in France. We're going to take a bit of a break for some music, and we'll be back in just a few moments with our final guest for today. Triple R. Uh, welcome back, everybody. You are listening to Einstein and Gago on 3 Triple I'm Dr. Shane, and I'm very excited now to be talking to a PhD student from the University of Melbourne School of Physics. Madeline Marshall is on the line. Good morning, Madeline. Hi. 
it's great to talk to you. You're you're working on something that we have talked about so many times on the show, but it's usually just me pulling stuff out of my butt. So it's good to talk to a, a person actually in the area of the James Webb Telescope, which is um, now. Do you have a feel for when it's going up? My, I mean, every time I ask this question, the number changes. So what's the current what's the current <laughs> deal? So currently, it's expected to launch on the thirty first of October next year, but. All right. As you know, it has been delayed a lot. So originally my PhD project was actually supposed to use data from James Webb. Oh. Um, but I've just graduated now and so <laughs> <laughs> the telescope hasn't even launched yet. So, right. yeah, it's um, it's certainly taking its time. But it's best to wait until everything's certain to work because once yep. it gets into space, there's nothing we can do if it doesn't work. Yeah, yeah. So my, my apologies. I just introduced you as someone doing a PhD. You finished your PhD. You done? Yeah, yeah. I just finished. Yes. Oh, apologies, Doctor Marshall. That's I, I, fine. Yes, uh, <laughs> I got that wrong. Um, now, this. I mean, this is something that, of course, the James Webb Telescope has been in in preparation, and so forth, in total for probably what fifteen years or something now, hasn't it? I mean, it's it's a long run. A very long time. Yes. Yeah. These instruments. I mean, it, it's a lot of development that goes into them, and a lot of money. And so, yeah, it's a really extended process. Yeah. And so, unfortunately, sometimes what that means is that the technology that's going up there was technology that was developed ten to fifteen years mm. ago. And so, sometimes we may have improvements for those things, but that's just the way they work. And yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, it's, it's still yeah, it's still quite incredible when you think of um, some of the stuff that goes up and just just how great the camera capabilities and that are relative to you know because we all think oh you know this is the thing I've got on my iPhone and that's amazing and but the reality is some of this stuff is quite incredible that's put up on these craft. One one of the things I wanted to talk to you about was the the location of this craft because we've we've talked about this a long time ago. I've mentioned this on the show, but this is one of the reasons why we've got to get it right. Yeah, because it's it's not in a location where we can just shoot up a, a, you know, a couple of astronauts to do a service job like we used to with the space shuttle and, and Hubble. Yeah, exactly. So Hubble was relatively easy to get to and so there was quite a few service missions. So when Hubble first launched, there was a big issue and it did need to go and get fixed straight away. Um, so Webb will be 1.5 million kilometres from the Earth And so for perspective, that's about four times further than the moon is. And so Mm. that's extremely hard to get to. Uh, And really, I mean, maybe in Webb's lifetime of maybe 10 years, hopefully, we might be able to get there and potentially service it. But there is no plans for that. And really, it will be extremely difficult to get that far away, especially yeah. on a manned mission. Yeah, and certainly uh, that idea of um, you know any, any sort of repair. They'd be saying, "Yeah, you're on your way back from Mars. If you don't mind dropping in, you know, <laughs> uh, web needs web needs a polish. You know, and and, and some yeah. crude crude mission might might do that. But gee, it's it's going to be a, a tall order. So they've got to get it right. Yeah. yeah, it's a long way, and it would be very expensive to get to. So. Basically, yep. it's on its own. Once it launches, that's it, and we have to hope for the best. Yep. And so yep. that's why this has taken so long. There's just so many tests and things in place to make sure that when it gets there, it works because really we've got one shot to get it right. Yeah. Now tell me, um, even though the timing wasn't right, why is Webb so exciting to you as a telescope as a replacement for Hubble? Like what, what's, what's so important about the Webb telescope? So for me, the most exciting thing is that Webb can look further uh, in the distance in the universe and so further back in time than we've ever been able to see before. So Webb is an infrared telescope. Uh, so the light that we see is in the optical wavelengths and at redder than that is the infrared. So the Hubble Space Telescope could see mostly in the optical, a little bit in the UV and a little bit in the infrared, but not very far. But what happens for galaxies in the very distant universe is their light is redshifted. So their light that is emitted in the optical wavelengths because these galaxies are travelling because of the expanding universe uh, away from us, it means that their light gets shifted into the infrared. And so because we're, uh, because Hubble only sees a small amount of the infrared radiation, we're really limited into how far back in time that we can see. And oh, so right. with, yeah. yeah, and so because now we have, we'll have this infrared capabilities, we'll actually be able to see into the first 100 million years of the universe. Wow. So really 
the error of the first galaxies and stars that exist. Now, now my understanding, and correct me if I'm wrong here, is that our uh, our understanding over all of that is is a bit sort of lacking because the these this idea that sort of certain galaxies take a certain amount of time to form, but very early in the universe we had these structures that we we haven't yet really been able to look at. Is that, is that right? Yeah, yeah. So there's a lot of um, theoretical kind of models and predictions for how galaxies formed, but we're really limited. So we see a handful of galaxies in the first kind of billion years of the universe. And so by having Webb, we'll actually be able to see them and now understand what's actually going on. So we'll have actually for the first time the opportunity to test our predictions and see if we really understand what we think we do or if we've been wrong this whole time. Yeah, that'd be really cool. Now, specifically, <laughs> what, what have you been modelling in, in, your, in your work with regards to the Webb telescope? So I'm looking at the host galaxies of supermassive black holes in the early universe. So every galaxy in the universe hosts a supermassive black hole. So these can be a million to even a trillions of times the mass of our sun. And we actually don't really know what formed these objects. Yeah. Uh, and so one way of understanding how they're formed is to look back right at the beginning of the universe and actually kind of watch them form. And so these black holes, because they're extremely massive, um, they attract any material that's in the galaxy, in the, in, right in the centre of the galaxy. Um, and so some of these have gas around them. And that gas is affected by the gravity of the black hole. And so it travels extraordinarily fast and so it gets very hot. So these, um, these gas particles get so hot that they emit what is the brightest light in the universe. Wow. So these are basically the most extreme objects in the universe. And so even though the black hole itself is black, we can't see that, we can see this extraordinarily bright accretion disk. And so we call these quasars. And so we can see these quasars right back into this first billion years of the universe. But then that brings up a big question is how could these black holes that are a billion times the mass of our sun have formed in less than a billion years? Mm. So that's the most exciting thing about Webb is that we'll now be able to try and see what galaxies these quasars live in. So at the moment with current instruments, we actually can't really get a good grasp of the properties of these galaxies but so with the improvements of James Webb we'll hopefully be able to uncover these galaxies that are completely hidden by the extremely bright light from the quasar itself and hopefully that will give us clues into how these black holes were able to grow so quickly. Yeah, I mean, this is super exciting stuff. I remember reading a lot about James Webb, and I was really excited because you could look at extrasolar planets and look at the thermal properties of those planets because, again, you know, this is the whole thing. We're talking about heat maps, really, aren't we? I mean, we're talking about heat maps. And you could look at those and, and potentially even look at look for signs of life and so forth um, with, with the Webb, which was exciting. I had no idea about this stuff. Uh, this was on the radar as well for, for Webb. But now that I think about it, that extreme redshifting, uh, I suppose we, we don't normally conceptualize the fact that um, there's a whole, is it an epoch? I don't know what you call it, like a whole period of time early on that is literally out of sight for Hubble. Like it is just beyond the colors that it can see. And if you want to go back further in time, you have to have a different camera system. And that's what Webb is presumably giving us. Now, the, the other thing is, what about the resolution from Webb? Because it's a much bigger beast, isn't it, than, um, than Hubble? In fact, Hubble's kind of tiny by comparison. Yes. Yeah. So the, the Webb mirror is about uh, 6.5 metres across uh, compared to the 2.4 metres of Hubble. Wow. So as an entire instrument, Webb is the size of a, kind of a large tennis court whereas Hubble is about the size of a bus. So we're looking at a much, much bigger instrument with a huge area of a mirror compared to, to Hubble. And so what this means is we can get more light from the things that we point the telescope at, and these things will come to us at a much better resolution. So the, with the increase in size, we should get about four times clearer images when we look at objects in space. Yep. And so what this means for galaxies in the very early universe is they're very small. And so to Hubble, they appear as like a fuzzy dot or a pixel kind of thing. But 
being able to see things four times crisper means that we'll be able to really kind of see some more details of these galaxies. Mm, yeah, I mean, because we, I guess we don't even know what their structure looks like, whether they're sort of barred spirals like our galaxy or anything even vaguely like that. It, is it okay if, you, if we also point point the Webb telescope at, say, Europa or Enceladus or some of the interesting moons in the solar system? Is that is that on the cards? Yeah, it is. So as well as looking a lot at the early universe, the other kind of few science goals of Webb are, as you mentioned before, looking at um, planets around other stars and trying to find the signatures of life, but also looking even closer to you know, our solar system. Mm. So yeah, it actually will be really useful for kind of understanding the properties of our own kind of nearby Yeah. Uh, uh, look, it, it, it's it's really exciting. I've been eager for this thing to go up for a while. Um, <laughs> now, just just finally, what's your next step, uh, Madeline? Where are you off to next post-PhD? Um, so I have a job at the National Research Council of Canada. Wow. Um, so I'm working remotely from Tasmania at the moment, but hopefully I get to go there and join them soon. Yeah. Are you in Tasmania at the moment? Yes. Jeez, so we've gone uh, Sydney... France, Tasmania today. Sorry, Melbourne, but going everywhere. You know, we're all over the place. <laughs> well, um, Madeline, it's it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. Good luck with the ongoing work over there in Canada. I I, I can imagine you'll be very excited when that first data comes in from from the Webb Telescope. Hopefully, um, only just over a year away now, which will be super cool. But uh, congratulations on finishing your PhD. And thank uh, you. Thanks, thanks for having me. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thanks for chatting to us today on Einstein and Gago. Thank you. That was uh, Dr. Madeline Marshall, folks from the School of Physics and University of Melbourne. She's just finished her PhD and is heading off to Canada. We are going to have to hand over to the team from Eat It in just a few minutes. Um, next week, we will be doing another round of the 20 PhDs in 20 minutes. Um, on the show, which will be a little bit of hard work for me and a huge amount of fun for a whole lot of our young researchers who are all coming through. And I will be uh, putting the details of how people can apply for that if any PhD students are listening up on Twitter at 7pm sharp tonight, assuming I don't forget, which could happen. Uh, and people will have 24 hours to apply. And just for our listeners to know, they will be chosen based on their ability to communicate their research in just two sentences. So, um, of course, they'll need to do that when they're on air here for about a minute. So it should be fun. This is about the fourth or fifth one we've done. It's always a good show. And then... Um, uh, we've got a really exciting guest coming up the week after that, which will be announced soon. You've uh, been listening to Einstein the Go-Go, hanging there now for the team from Eat It. I'm Dr. Shane. Remember, science is everywhere. Have a great Sunday, and we'll chat to you again next week. Hi, this is Dr. Shane. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Einstein the Go-Go, a weekly radio show exploring the wonders of science and its impact on the world. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoyed the podcast. And feel free to get in touch with us via Einstein Go Go's Twitter account or Facebook page.